Support for WAER Original Podcasts comes from California Closets of Syracuse, located in DeWitt. California Closets can help you get your entire home organized with custom design storage solutions for the home office, kitchen pantry, closets, and more. Online at californiaclosets.com. This is Pop Life from WAER. I'm Kendall Phillips, and I have to confess, sometimes when I scroll through all those streaming services, I feel a little bit overwhelmed. There are so many movies, and at least for me, sadly, so little time to watch them. And yet, as much as we seem to have access to so many films, the sad reality is that a substantial percentage of early films are gone. Some have been lost, or thrown away, consumed by fire, or just allowed to decay. The ravages of time are taking their toll on the history of film and the many movies that helped shape our culture. Fortunately, one of the institutions waging battle To preserve our cultural history is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and its film archive. The Academy Film Archive is dedicated to preserving, restoring, and exhibiting a massive and diverse collection of films. Here to help us understand the difficult process and vital importance of film preservation and the Academy's role in this effort is Mike Pugorzowski, director of the Academy Film Archive. Michael, welcome to Pop Life. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Uh, Michael, it's just great to have you. And I do think one of the places to start, because I often find when talking about film history just with the average movie lover, uh, they're surprised at how fragile the history of film is, how many films have been lost. Can you talk a little bit about how much film we've lost and, and why we've lost them? Well, for the first 50 years or so of the film industry, movies only really had value, commercial value, that is, uh, in, the, in their first weeks or months of their life. Once a film played uh, on screens in theaters, I mean, starting in the Nickelodeon era and up through uh, the golden age, I'm using air quotes, golden age of, of Hollywood, uh, there was no really uh, secondary market for films to be exploited or to generate revenue. Uh, So that's, I think, the main reason why a lot of films were neglected is there were a certain title, there were certain titles that could be shown again, uh, the the huge, you know, gone with the winds of the world. Um, But a lot of movies, once they ran, that was it. And so um, if there wasn't a revenue stream, then uh, things were left to decay, like you said, or, or were not really preserved at all. And the fortunate thing about film is that if it is stored in even moderate conditions, uh, it could be passively preserved is the term that we use. In other words, it could sit on a shelf for months or years or decades even and still be recoverable and usable. Um, And so that's how a lot of films have, have survived is that they weren't really bothering anybody and just sat on a shelf. Um, The other thing to keep in mind is that the first 50 years of movie making was done uh, with a type of film stock called a nitrate. Uh, The base is nitrocellulose, and it's extremely flammable. If you've seen feature films like Cinema Paradiso or Inglorious Bastards, where there are examples of nitrate film catching on fire, uh, it's very dangerous stuff because once a, a piece of nitrate starts burning, it can't be extinguished. Uh, Even with as much water or chemical fire retardant you can throw at it, it generates its own oxygen as it burns. So the only thing you can do is let it burn itself out. So for that reason, um, you know, 
mass quantities of nitrate film were were dangerous. I mean, they really were dangerous of, of causing fires. And, and unfortunately, uh, people have died in nitrate fires and entire buildings have been burned to the ground. So that was a, a, a factor as well, that it was dangerous to, to store film, that type of film. Yeah, it's interesting. I've looked a little at the history of early film and how often there was this kind of panic about the motion picture fire, like the the, the film catching on fire and burning down the theater. And that was a, a very, very real concern. So is part of the Academy's role, I guess, preserving those films that were not necessarily commercially viable? I always think about the tension between you know motion pictures as an art form, as a part of our culture, uh, that, that films have value in and of themselves. And then, of course, there's the commercial interest. And you point out that the studios have some vested interest in preserving the material that they can make money on. What is the Academy's role in that? Are you, are you there to kind of pick up the rest of the pieces or? No, no, it's, you know, for the Academy Film Archive is, is the youngest film archive mm-hmm. um, of, the, of the nitrate holding archives in the United States. Uh, the Academy Film Archive came into formal existence in 1991. And ever since then, we've been, we've been, fighting this uh, awareness or not fighting, <laughs> perpetuating or trying to get this awareness out there that the Academy Film Archive has all different kinds of films in it. I mean, literally every type of film. Yes, the Academy, the films that have been uh, nominated and have won Academy Awards are definitely part of our collection and are part of our restoration and preservation efforts. But we have an amazing collection of documentary films, the largest reference collection uh, in the United States, but also the collections of important uh, and many different types of documentary filmmakers like Charles Guggenheim and the Maisel's brothers. Um, but we also have one of the best collections of avant-garde and experimental film that focuses primarily on West Coast filmmakers, uh, but really represents the, a wide swath of avant-garde and experimental filmmaking. Um, We also have an incredible short film collections, both the short films that have been nominated, um, but also animated short films, of course, documentary short films. Um, We have an amazing collection of scientific and technical tests uh, of different types of film stocks, audio technologies, digital technologies. uh, And finally, we have an incredible collection of home movies, amateur films Hmm. uh, that started when uh, filmmakers would donate their collections to the Margaret Herrick Library. This is their life's papers, scripts, correspondence. Mixed in with those would be uh, a smattering of, of home movies. And, and oftentimes they were home movies just like we all have in our families. There are barbecues and vacations and birthday parties. But since these are filmmakers we're talking about, oftentimes they would take their home movie cameras on set or on location with them. So we have this incredible trove of behind the scenes footage from the era of filmmaking long before there was such a thing as behind the scenes or or making of featurettes. Uh, And we've expanded that to include home movies shot in Southern California, because Los Angeles as a city has changed so dramatically Mm -hmm. over its life. Oftentimes, home movies are the only moving images of neighborhoods that are have transformed completely over the course of history. And if you if you collect home movies made in Southern California, we've kind of become the de facto Disneyland home movie archive <laughs> because everyone took their home movie camera to 
to Disneyland. Um, and that may sound like a small thing, but uh, our special collections curator, Lynn Kirsty, put together a program of home movies from our collection shot at Disneyland and showed it to the audience at A23, which is kind of like the Comic-Con for Disneyland aficionados. And people just lost their minds because <laughs> the same, just like, oh, those are the original teacups. Or, <laughs> I mean, there, there are, there's home movie footage when, when Disneyland actually used um, live actors and actresses to be mermaids and um, mm. you know, to populate the rides. Uh, it really is incredible stuff. So our collection is one of the most varied and deep and diverse that represents all kinds of films from every era of film history. That's an incredibly rich archive that you have there. So what was it in 1991? What was the impetus for the Academy to say, hey, we should get in the business of, of preserving film? Well, I think that um, the '80s was really the beginning of uh, the of a of a very important and productive time in the archival movement here in the United States and and around the world. Um, these are when you know restorations of films like Napoleon and uh, Lawrence of Arabia were were starting to to happen, and and the UCLA Film and Television Archive was doing an active campaign around their slogan, Nitrate Won't Wait, mm -hmm. to raise awareness for film preservation. Uh, and Bob Gitt, the preservation officer there, was taking on some very high profile uh, restorations. And so the Academy wanted to, and in 1990, I should mention, uh, Martin Scorsese formed the Film Foundation, which was created to provide funding for film restoration. Um, and, and so the Academy saw this movement happening and, and wanted to be a part of it. Um, the other factor was the Academy already had a film collection. They, they've been receiving films for years, both as part of the Academy Awards process, because there was always been a rule on the book that every film nominated a print needed to be given to the Academy. But that rule was enforced to greater often lesser degrees <laughs> for various reasons over the years. But there was already this existing collection that needed to be taken care of. Um, and the Academy wanted to expand that collection there. It was clear that there were a lot of, um, of different types of films, like I said, that were in need of home because they weren't owned by a studio, you know, like you said, who, who will take care of its uh, own films or a government entity or uh, any place really to to call home. Uh, and so that was the the impetus to get some skin in the game and to as an institution to support preserving uh, film history. No, and such valuable work. And it's a, it is an interesting point. I, I for years ago, I had, had a, a very fortunate opportunity to see a little bit of the Disney vault, the the, the place where mm. they preserve uh, their their original films. And it was quite a, an impressive uh, piece of architecture. Uh, and yet I could understand the financial motivation for having Snow White or Cinderella or Pinocchio. Um, and for you all, it is more of a preservation of uh, film history, which I think is absolutely invaluable. Can you talk to us a little bit about what it takes to preserve these films? We've already established that they're relatively, they, they're stable if you leave them alone, but boy, if they get going, they can cause a lot of damage. So how do you preserve an early nitrate film? Hmm. Well, um, the best way to preserve any type of film stock, whether it's nitrate or um, the non-flammable successor of nitrate was, was based on acetate and is commonly known as safety film stock, safety because 
it didn't burn. <laughs> um, and then starting in the 90s, Kodak uh, began manufacturing uh, print stock on a polyester base. Uh, so if you put all three of those film stocks in a cool and somewhat dry environment, uh, that will slow down the process of deterioration. Uh, but because film stock contains all different types of chemicals and, and um, molecules, uh, some that are organic, it, it's inevitable that it will deteriorate. Um, keeping it cold and somewhat dry just slows that process down to the point where we know films can last 100 years or more because we have films that are over 100 years old. <laughs> in fact, the oldest film in, in the Academy's collection uh, is an 1895 Edison kinetoscope um, that we've, of course, have preserved to, to safety film, but the original nitrate film strip uh, exists. Uh, so that really is the, the best way to, to preserve the physical stuff. We also are, are copying films. I mean, all archives have been doing that from older nitrate stock onto, um, onto current safety film, whether that's polyester or, or acetate based. And now the other uh, method that we're doing is we're scanning film um, and preserving those digital files, those zeros and ones uh, is its own, uh, presents its own preservation challenges, but that's another means that we have in the 21st century. I remember speaking to, uh, I think it was one of the folks from UCLA who was saying digital is great except one minor problem with the code and the whole thing is gone as opposed to the traditional nitrate film where if you have a little bit of damage, you can just clip it out and kind of move around it. So I'm curious about that process though. So as I understand, in addition to just preserving film or digitizing it or scanning it, there's also a lot of work being done to restore, to bring films back to their original color or to bring them back to better quality. So what does that involve? Um, well, that could be, yeah, like you said, I mean, digital tools are, have been fantastic because they give us the ability to fix damage or, or fix color fading, like you said, in ways that we couldn't uh, using strictly photochemical mm -hmm. tools or processes. Um, the other thing that we could do with digital is um, it, it just makes putting things back together uh, a lot easier. Um, because oftentimes if you were working on restoring a film that had been censored, for instance, um, you would have to build all different roles to print them to, to cull from different sources. Um, for instance, the first Best Picture winner that, that I worked on the restoration of was actually with Bob Gitt and, uh, um, and Sean Belston, who was at 20th Century Fox at the, at the time. And because the original camera negative of... Um, that best picture winner was How Green Was My Valley. Mm. I should mention that, yeah. <laughs> the 1941 wow. film directed by John Ford. Um, the original camera negative no longer existed and does not exist now. So we had to piece that together from a safety fine grain in the Fox Library, a nitrate duplicate negative in UCLA's collection and a nitrate print in the Academy's collection. And sometimes we were able to use whole reels, you know, roughly seven to nine minute sections. And other times we were doing just what you were describing, a shot from this element, a shot from this element, a shot from this element. And it was painstaking and took <laughs> over a year because we had to put, lay those pieces out photochemically and print them into a single strand. Um, but now with digital tools, we can scan everything and, and take what we need from different sources fairly easily. It seems like the world's most complicated jigsaw puzzle there. <laughs> <laughs> it can be, yes.
So I'm curious. I mean, it's amazing the work you're doing to preserve and restore and put these films back together. And I do feel like I feel like every few years I see an advertisement for, um, you know, the newly restored Metropolis, now fully restored. And I think I've seen it about four times every time, slightly more restored. So there's always more bits out there and people are constantly putting it together. How do we use that? How do you use that? What is the what's the purpose in some ways of the film archive? How, how are these films circulating? How are they being used? Um, well, I mean, the term restored is, 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 is has a complicated history to it, um, you know, from a strictly archival definition to a marketing definition. Um, it can mean um, a, a lot of different things. Um, so, you know, you have to, as a, as a movie consumer, you have to be aware of what that means. And, and the good news is, is that there are there are lots of places uh, online now to find out what a you know what version of a film you're watching and and even the details of where it came from um, and any interventions that were that had been made by the current team. So Metropolis is a, is a perfect example of a film, like you said, that has been re 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 restored. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so much documentation about that film's history, both you know, from an editorial perspective and a distribution perspective, and then a conservation perspective, that if you really want to, if you're, you're if you're writing about the film, you know, in a scholarly way, you can actually learn exactly what you're watching. Um, and, in, and in terms of how films are sort of distributed and getting out into the world, I mean, you mentioned at the top of this, how many streaming services there are, it's just kind of mind-boggling but at the same time um there are there is such a huge percentage of films that are not available online um that may be available only in uh, dvd form or even vhs tapes in some ways or in in extreme examples they only exist in archives like ours uh and that's why a number of documentary filmmakers come to the archive to to watch things at our public access center because Yes, um, you know they're making a they're they're making a film, let's say, about homelessness in Los Angeles, and there have been many films about homelessness in Los Angeles, but six of those, fifteen, let's say, never actually got distributed, um, and so they're only viewable in the archive, um, and we're happy to do that. By the way, we we have a public access center that's open to the public; anyone can view anything in the Academy Film Archives collection. Um, and there's no cost to it. Now, if someone wants to watch Gone with the Wind, like I said, we would point them to the Blu-ray. But there, <laughs> may be, uh, there may be reasons why uh, there's a research question that can only be answered by looking at something on film um, in, in the Access Center. Or like I said, there's no other way to watch it other than the copy in our collection. No, it's an incredibly valuable resource that I suspect the average uh, person visiting Los Angeles or, or Los Angelino doesn't know that they have access, and that's incredible. So documentary filmmakers probably are using you all a lot, coming back and looking for footage. Are there other folks, uh, filmmakers, current filmmakers, coming to the archive to get a look at what things looked like or a feel for things in the past? Um, we usually, well, before COVID anyway, <laughs> there, were, there were always a lot of student filmmakers uh, who would come be to to watch past student academy award winners? Mm. Um, I think partly to to see what academy members were were voting, but also to to see how 
their fellow student filmmakers were solving problems and telling stories and to be inspired by that. Um, and in terms of contemporary filmmakers, yes, every once in a while, um, uh, filmmakers come and visit us. I was just um, I was just reminded by my wife the other day of the time um, Wes Anderson and a few of his collaborators came to the archive uh, to watch all of the Jacques Cousteau films that we had in the collection while they were preparing <laughs> Life Aquatic. Um, and that was a lot of fun to, <laughs> to, to not only watch Jacques Cousteau's films because they're, they're amazing films, but to watch them with Wes Anderson and to, and then a year later to watch Life Aquatic and, and see how they were uh, inspired by them. That's such an amazing uh, resource that I, I can't imagine. That must have been a lot of fun to have watched them, watching them, and then watched the, what, what came from that. That's really great. Exactly, exactly. So I'm curious a little bit about you, Michael. Um, one of the things I always like to ask folks who are in museum spaces or archive spaces is, has there been a particular object that was an oh-wow moment for you, a, a film that you looked at and said, oh, my, this is that film, this is that actual thing? Um, yeah, there have been several of those. <laughs> I, I, I guess the first one was uh, um, the first three strip Technicolor negative that I was able to inspect by hand was um, the Paul Pressburger film, A Matter of Life and Death. Um, and, and I was absolutely pinching myself for the three days or so that, that I was inspecting it over the bench for a restoration that we were, that the Academy worked on with uh, Sony Pictures at the time. Um, and you just can't believe you're, you're holding the film that went through the camera that day on set in front of the actors. Um, and, and there have been uh, a lot of, a lot of films like that, but, but I'll, I'll never forget that, that first, that first one. That must have been a really amazing experience. So what, what, when did the archive bug bite you? Did you, did you from a young age say one day I want to work with nitrate film or what, what path <laughs> led you into uh, the Academy Film Archive? Well, I always loved the physical stuff of, of film. Um, so I would project my family's home movies and, and volunteer to run the slide projectors and grade school uh, and in high school, actually. Um, and, and my story is, is very similar to a number of uh, cinephiles who were born in the, in the late 60s, early 70s, like me. Um, I, I saw my first film when I was four years old, and uh, it was Bambi. Um, when the archive was in the Margaret Herrick Library, I actually looked it up to remember if I was really that age. Um, and Bambi was re-released in the spring of 1976, so that that fits. And then the following year, Star Wars came out, and that was kind of the end of me. Like I, I just I was in 100 <laughs> percent uh, a, a movie fan. Um, and and so in the in the 80s, uh, like I said, my story follows this the trajectory of everyone. I um, convinced my parents to get us a VCR. Um, the uh, Alfred Hitchcock films that had been unavailable for distribution for a long time came out in 1984. And uh, that, that was Rear Window, Vertigo, The Trouble with Harry, um, The Man Who Knew Too Much and Rope. And uh, that sent me down a Hitchcock rabbit hole mm. through the rest of uh, <laughs> middle school and high school. Um, and then I started working in movie theaters um, when I was in high school. I learned to be a projectionist. Um, and then when I went to college, uh, that's how I put myself through school was projecting everywhere on the UW, the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus, running the independent film societies, 
showing films in the student union and in the film department, processing and printing film for, for a while. Um, and that kind of, and then I went to graduate school and, and got my master's degree. So all of those things kind of came together and into film archiving. You know, I, I, I saw how film could be damaged mm. <laughs> and mishandled. Um, and then I also learned the history of film technology um, and film aesthetics and, and, um, and that all just kind of came together into, into film restoration. So, yeah, I, I didn't start out even knowing what a film archivist was or what a film archivist did. But when I, when I did find out, I, I found something that would be, uh, one of the greatest jobs that I could have ever asked for. No, it's an amazing journey, and it is that great when one has that moment when you look and say, "Oh, I can do this thing." Well, I, I would love to do this thing. That's great. I am curious. Uh, you mentioned Star Wars, which I, I remember as, as a young person. That's kind of the first film I remember being a wow, mind blowing moment. Is there a particular film though for you that was the moment you said, "This is really serious stuff." It's not just that I love it, but this is like my life's passion. Like I am. Is there a film that convinced you to dedicate yourself to film? Um, I don't know necessarily that there was one mm. film, um, but I mean, I certainly remember all of the first courses that I took as an undergraduate, uh, and really I was taking about double the number of, <laughs> of film classes that any, that any undergrad would be allowed to take because in addition to the classes I was registered in and, you know, writing papers and taking tests and things, I was projecting for three other classes. So I wasn't in the documentary class, but I was watching all of the movies because I was getting paid to project them. And that was just amazing too. I'm just like, I can't believe they're paying me for this. This is great. I would do this for free or even pay to do it, but they're giving me money for it. Um, so it was really like just that, that plunge into, into film history, uh, that I, that I had as an undergrad. And, and that's something to keep or to mention too, is mm -hmm. that Madison was an amazing film town. I was born too late to enjoy the real Halcyon days of it, because in the '60s and the and the '70s, uh, there were more films screened in Madison, Wisconsin, than in New York or Los Angeles. Wow! I wrote a story about the history of the film societies when I was a journalist there, and, and got that quote from several different distributors. I mean, there was a film society for every type of of movie. Um, there was a German silent film society. There was a Western film society. There was a English film society, uh, as well as, you know, just classic American, um, you know, it's every type of genre and niche. And by the time I got to campus in the 90s, that was just down to two film societies, one that showed, um, you know, second run Hollywood blockbuster current contemporary films. Mm -hmm. And then the Wisconsin Film Society showed uh, classic films and art, new art films. Um, and so we were, there were still places to just basically gather with fellow film lovers. Um, and that really too was meeting people who wanted to talk about film and love film as much as you did is, is what really galvanized me. And, uh, and yeah, once I sort of found my people, uh, there was no looking back. Yeah, it's interesting that that does seem to have waned a little bit. I can recall, again, also being in, in a university and, and being surrounded by various film societies and lots of very unique sets of interests. And it does seem maybe it's partly because we have such access to films that the watching a film is maybe not as special to people now. I don't know. What, what's your thought on that? 
I think there are just fewer places to gather uh, physically. I mean, there are lots of great places online um, to sure. to talk about film and debate film, um, but there is something that never really replaces being in person. Um, and, and for me growing up in Milwaukee, um, that place was the video store in my neighborhood. Um, and I was kind of first inspired and, and also shown things that were off the beaten path uh, by my sort of like first film mentor uh, who went on to become a, a critic. Uh, his name's Joe Newmeyer and, and writes in New York. And it's still kind of amazing to me that we found each other um, mm. and that we both, you know, kind of got the film bug together and um, and continued to work in in film, you know, and around movies. Um, and there were all kinds of characters who were hanging out with us in the video store, <laughs> just talking about what had come out and um, and trying to get them to, you know, get movies, old movies that we all wanted to see. Um, and so to have that physicality to it. Um, is is something that's kind of irreplaceable or or ear that's not recreatable mm. online in quite the same way. I don't know. Do you get that sense as well? Uh, absolutely. Whether it was the independent movie theater where you all piled out from a Bergman film to the bar next door to argue about life and death, or even if it was just the old, you know, mom and pop independent video store where the clerk actually knew things and said, oh, I remember you, you like this, have you heard of this person? And you'd say no, and you'd watch it. That is, I don't know if, for me, maybe it's a generational thing, maybe a little bit like you, Michael, I don't mm -hmm. know that I can find that online with Letterboxd or, or Facebook, et cetera. But speaking of the future and kind of where we are now and moving forward, What's the future of film preservation, particularly as we're moving into an increasingly digital space where I'm guessing a lot of films exist entirely as digital products? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, the uh, um, starting in the mid-2000s, uh, there were films that were born digital. In, in other words, no piece of celluloid hmm. passed through a camera. They were, they were, the images were all captured digitally. Um, I mean, so that's nothing new, really. That's almost going on 20 years now that that has been the case. Um, in terms of, well, I mean, I of how we view movies is 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 going is is constantly changing, and I think there's no end to the the change. Um, and so you you and I can talk and speculate about what that <laughs> looks like in kind of a post-COVID world now that theaters have reopened and um and we can all look at what what how many people are going back to to movie theaters and what types of movies they're seeing there um and so i think there's there's a lot of interesting change that's continuing to happen uh as far as seeing films from the past broadly speaking you know whether you're talking about a movie that came out in 1998 or 1908 um, that's changing as well. Uh, and, and there's more opportunities to see older films. And by that, I just mean anything older than a year, let's say, <laughs> than ever before. And I think that that level of access is, is great because it, the more films that you can see, I guess, from a historical perspective, or even as a filmmaker for inspiration, the more, um, the more analysis you can do, the, the better your history will be and the more thoroughly researched it will be and the conclusions will be sounder. Uh, and likewise, if you're a filmmaker, the more you can see and learn how filmmakers from the past um, 
solved problems and told stories, uh, the more the more tools you'll have in your toolbox to make your movie and tell your stories. Uh, so that part of it is great. The, the thing that's missing going forward and probably will be replaced in any kind of mass way is what we were just talking about, movie theaters where, where people are gathering to see those older films rather than newly created films. Um, but the, the, the good news is, is that one place that that's happening here in Los Angeles is at the Academy Museum, which has turned into the one of the best places to see old, quote, old films, <laughs> films that are more than a year old, um, <laughs> and to gather with people to, to share that experience um, and to learn from it and be inspired by it uh, and just enjoy it. Well, Michael, I have been inspired by the amazing work that you have done and your depth of knowledge. I think all our listeners will be thrilled to know that the Academy Film Archive is an amazing resource, preserving our many, many stories and putting them out there, making them accessible for us. Now, I should tell you, Michael, perhaps the only thing that will be preserved from the Pop Life podcast is a terrible little game we call the Fast Five. So, Michael, I'm going to ask you five either-or questions drawn from uh, film history. I'm going to ask you to follow your heart and pick the best option, beginning with question number one. If you could discover a print of one lost film, would you choose 1926's The Road to Glory, Howard Hawks' directorial debut, or Todd Browning's 1927 London After Midnight? I'll go with Hawks. <laughs> oh, see, wrong answer. I think it's always London oh, After is Midnight. It? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, a very good show. How could you not want to see where Howard Hawks got his start? Question number two. As you've mentioned here, you identified uh, at an early age with Bambi and the film that kind of sparked your love for film. Which of Bambi's friends do you most identify with? Is it Thumper, the helpful rabbit, or Flower, the ironically named skunk? Uh, I guess I would say Thumper. I think that's a better choice, at least on the olfactory front. <laughs> Question number three for you, Michael. In the 1990s, I know that you wrote about movies for the University of Wisconsin's Badger Herald. Which famous movie critic did you most want to become? Was it Roger Ebert from the Chicago Sun-Times or Gene Siskel from the Chicago Tribune? Oh, Ebert, hands down. Ebert. <laughs> Poor Gene Siskel. I feel like somehow he's kind of gotten <laughs> a short shrift in the long uh, history since the uh, Siskel and Ebert show. Question number four for you. So, Michael, if you could sit down for a cup of coffee with one early pioneering filmmaker, would it be the first wizard of cinema, Georges Méliès, or the early inventor, William Kennedy Dixon? Well, hmm. My French is not great <laughs> anymore, um, but if language isn't an issue, then I guess I would go with Melies. I We will get you a translator for that, absolutely. Choose the artist okay, over, over the technician. Finally, question number five. Uh, we know, as you mentioned, that the archive has an extensive, extensive collection of home movies. Uh, so I'm going to ask you, which is the most common genre of home movies? Is it kids opening Christmas presents or a family visit to Disneyland? <laughs> oh man, I I don't know and can't even estimate the numbers of kids opening gifts. I mean, because that would probably include birthdays as well. Um, it seems like there would have to be more gifts than trips to Disneyland, but maybe I'd hate to live on the difference. I guess I'll go with gifts. 
<laughs> I think the next Academy Film Archive presentation needs to be kids opening gifts. You could just have a 24-hour exhibition. Uh, Michael, you've been an amazing guest. Really appreciate all your insights and the work you do. Uh, but we always like to know a little more about our guests beyond their expertise. So what is in your pop life? What in pop culture are you loving these days? Um, I'm really looking forward to uh, to the conclusion of the HBO series Barry with uh, Bill Hader. I, I absolutely love that show and it works great as a, as a piece of television and as a, as a piece of cinema, even because uh, there are, it, it's inspired by so much of, of film history. Um, if there are any cinema files out there who haven't discovered Barry yet, please uh, get on the bandwagon as quickly as possible uh, because the last season is, is starting soon. <laughs> um, I'm not really going in for um, any directors or, or deep dives mm -hmm. lately uh, because I was mostly trying to keep up with new movies that were coming out or uh, films that had been nominated as part of this sure. award cycle. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the other thing that's been great about the, the streaming era are um, the number of documentary shorts that can be seen on, on all of the streamers. And, and this group of... Uh, nominees in the doc short category were all absolutely fantastic. Mm. So if you want to look at that list and and dive into those doc shorts, and they also are such an amazing array of uh, subject matter uh, this year. They, that was that was a lot of fun. And the other thing that I would recommend too, this is a little bit of a plug, I mm. guess. Um, I mentioned the Film Foundation earlier. Uh, the Film Foundation and the Academy Film Archive have, have worked on so many restorations, so, so many restorations over uh, all of the years of both of our existence. The Film Foundation has a screening room now where they screen a film a month uh, for 24 hours. There's no charge for it. And there's usually a lot of uh, other great things about the film, about, uh, you know, the filmmakers talking about it, um, little pieces about the restoration and, and how that was done. So uh, I would I would encourage people to go to the Film Foundation's website and, and check out what they're screening every month. Well, some amazing opportunities for you, Michael. Thanks so much. It's been great to learn about the extensive work you all are doing at the Academy Film Archive to preserve film. But to our listeners, I'll remind you that that is not all the Academy preserves. I hope you'll join me next week as we head back into the warehouse to explore the incredible document collection at the Academy's Margaret Herrick Library. I will see you all next time. Thanks for listening to Pop Life, a production of WAER, Syracuse Public Media. You can find archived episodes at waer.org. And don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen for automatic delivery of new episodes.